And if you would, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. You'll find our passage on page 1001 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to use that. Thank you for your prayers for me as I um, crossed over into the mountains of West Virginia yesterday for a funeral for my uncle. Appreciate all those who prayed and all those who came today to let me know they were praying for me. Things went very well. My uncle was very much a believer, and so there was a lot of hope um, and joy at his funeral. For this evening, I want us to spend some time considering one of what I think of as the sort of high points, if you will, of Jesus's earthly ministry. The feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle, of course. It uh, showed Jesus' power. It uh, validated his claims about himself. But it was also a public act, an act with huge significance for the history of God's people. It was an epic moment in the great narrative of Scripture with tremendous implications for all people. If you think about it, Jesus' miracles kind of fall into different categories, don't they? Many of them were done in private, uh, encouraging primarily one person, maybe that person's family. Some of them seem to have been done primarily to encourage the disciples and their faith. And probably the majority of Jesus' miracles were never narrated for us. We're told in the Gospels that he would enter a town and we're simply told he healed all of their illnesses, all their diseases. And we don't know what that looked like. We don't know the details. So when you're reading your copy of Scripture and you're reading in the Gospels and you come to a miracle, it is always worth your time. Uh, to slow down and ask yourself, why out of the thousands and thousands of miracles that Jesus did, has this gospel author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chosen this particular miracle? What is the message? Because it's, it's rarely just, oh, look, Jesus can do this. I mean, that certainly is present in the miracles, but usually there are deep underlying theological messages. There's great points that the Spirit is seeking Uh, to make in a particular miracle. And that is especially the case here in the feeding of the 5,000. This is probably why all four Gospels record this particular miracle, because they understood the massive implications of this miracle for all of God's people and really for the whole of Scripture. Jesus here presents himself as a new and a better Moses. And he presents himself here as a new and a better Elisha. You heard that reading a few moments ago, how Elisha multiplied food. And Jesus is going to do that here on a much grander scale than anything Elisha did. And also in this miracle is a hint that not only will Christ multiply the loaves, but in some sense he will eventually become the loaf itself so that he is both priest who hands the loaf to the people and feeds them, and also sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and offers himself as true bread and true wine. All these things, many, many more, are in this wonderful text. Will you please stand, and I will read it for us. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus 
and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for this wonderful record of Christ's power and his compassion. And we do come to you tonight seeking the bread of your word, which is the word of Christ, that we might be fed and nourished and drawn to him. So give us eyes to see him by faith in his word. Give us hearts to desire him, that as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we would realize that in fact we are hungering and thirsting after he who alone is righteousness. So give us hearts for him, we pray, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you look back through this chapter of Mark, it comes in a context. The feeding of the 5,000 comes in an important context. Two things are going on in Mark 6. First of all, the disciples have been sent out by Christ uh, to preach the gospel, the good news that the kingdom has come, uh, that the Messiah is here, and to prepare oneself uh, for the full coming of the kingdom. But right in the middle of that record, Mark pauses to tell us about something kind of disturbing and maybe uh, inappropriate, it seems, the context. He stops, uh, you can see in verse 14 in your Bible, to tell us about a drunken, wild birthday party thrown by Herod, king of the Jews, who should be their shepherd, who is in the role of David, the shepherd king, and it should be shepherding the people of Israel. Instead, Herod, and he's seen this way all through the New Testament, is essentially a pagan at heart, uh, like many church leaders over the centuries. The keeping of birthdays, I have no problem with that today. I do it. I do it for all my children. 
But you need to bear in mind that at this point in history, the keeping of your birthday was an utterly pagan and Roman activity that no devout Jew would engage in. It was the practice of the Roman courts and of the Caesars, and it was often tied to the god or goddess that was associated with their birthday. It was also pagan in that it was a bit of an obsession about oneself. And so if you were an emperor, it meant you had a huge feast and a huge celebration of you. Uh, You were the star. And so this fit very well with Herod's mindset. So the context here really, as we come to the feeding of the 5,000, is the disciples who are utterly exhausted from a ministry that has been hugely successful because the people of Israel are desperate for the truth. They're desperate for good preaching. They're desperate to hear uh, who God is and the utter failure of Israel's shepherds to really love and care for them. There's one other thing going on here, though I think that you need to know and adds, I think, a lot of color to uh, this text. And that is that it's this time of Passover. All this is happening around the time of Passover. Now, if you take our Christmas and our Easter and you put them together and just sort of molded all that excitement and interest into one holiday, that's kind of what Passover was for the Jewish people. It was the center of their lives, the Exodus story. When they thought about their salvation, just as you think about the cross, when they thought about their salvation, they thought about the Exodus. They thought about the amazing miracles, the stunning miracles that occurred in that period. The the parting of the Red Sea, a, a pillar of fire and cloud that followed them around. And among those great miracles, one they would have talked about all the time during this period, of course, was the giving of manna. To, to live for so many years in deserted lands, in wilderness lands, and survive as a nation, it should never have been able to, to even happen. It seemed impossible. How did it happen? Through manna, through receiving a heavenly bread day by day. And, and that is also the context then for what Jesus is about to do. It's Passover. The Jewish leaders, uh, typified by Herod, are obsessed with themselves And in the midst of this, uh, even the disciples who are on the right team, so to speak, are exhausted. It's in the middle of all this that Jesus comes in his power and his glory and meets all these needs and cares for all these people. I want to focus tonight on three things that we see from the feeding of the 5,000. There are many more. As I worked on this this week, I was constantly coming to the conclusion that you really almost need a sermon series to get through this passage because it connects to so many other places in the Bible and just has so much significance. But I'm going to kind of focus us down, I hope, into three areas. And the first is this. I want you to see in the passage the shepherd's heart or Christ's heart, his compassion for the sheep. Remember, the context here is Herod, who should be the shepherd, Uh, busy about his drunken birthday party. He has a beautiful girl dance for him. There is some suggestion in the text that the dance was provocative. Uh, The girl is related to him, so this is increasingly immoral. And in his whatever drunken state he was in, he promises her whatever she wants. She asks for the head of John the Baptist. So Herod has just killed the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era, 
John the Baptist, had him, his head cut off at the whim of a girl who danced for him. And it's in that context that suddenly here in these verses we meet a true shepherd, a real shepherd. You remember Jesus' words when he gives the good shepherd discourse. He says, I'm a good shepherd because I know my sheep by name and they're mine. In the ancient world, shepherds were usually a hired hand. You didn't own them. You had an owner who was rich and wealthy and lived in a city comfortably. And then that owner would hire poor men to go out in the fields and watch the sheep. So Jesus says with a good shepherd discourse, when the wolf and the lion comes, what do you do if you're making a you know, minimum wage to watch the sheep and a lion shows up? You run. <laughs> These aren't your sheep. But Jesus in that whole discourse, he reveals himself as not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd because he knows them by name and because they're his and because he's willing to lay down his life. He's an owner shepherd, not a rent a shepherd. And that's really what's revealed here, his love and his concern for his people. You see that in a couple different ways. You see it first in verse 31, don't you? And he said to them, that is his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Because they could not even find time to eat. So he has compassion on his own disciples. He sent them out to do ministry and he can see in their faces, in their lives, that they are absolutely exhausted from what he's called them to do. And so he says, come with me, take a break from ministry, and just rest. Now this is just extraordinary when you, when you meditate on it for a moment. This is the most important ministry in the world. More important than mine, more important than anyone else in history. This is the most important ministry moment in all of history, Old and New Testament. It is Jesus' own ministry by his apostles in person. And yet Jesus says that rest for his people still matters. It would be so easy. I think if I were in charge in this situation, I would say to the disciples something like, well, I get that you're exhausted, but this is the most important moment in history, so just get back to work. And if you work yourself to death in a couple years, that's okay, because what we're doing is that important. And yet Jesus is the true shepherd, and he has compassion on his servants, and he doesn't want to draw the, drive them to exhaustion. I think that's an important lesson for us, not just here, but throughout the Gospels. Jesus and his disciples take sabbaticals. They take sabbaticals. They take rest. They understand the importance of rest. And it's very easy for us, I think, as for myself as a pastor, but I think for all of us in the callings God has placed us to have in our mind that what we're doing is so important, the raising of our children, uh, the job that we have, the ministry we have there at church, that the only answer in every situation is push, 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 push. And some of us have invented, I think, in our own minds a Jesus who just says to us every time we come to him, just push harder. You just need to do more. Why can't you do more? And that's all we see here. We see a good shepherd that knows the limitations of his people and cares about their whole person, their spiritual well-being, but also their physical well-being. And so he says, come away with me. We're going to hide out, actually, from ministry. We're going to go into a deserted place where no one will know where we are, and we're just going to rest physically and spiritually. 
But that compassion that Jesus has, you notice, it it spills out. It's not just for the disciples, is it? It overflows to the people, the people that follow him. Again, it would have been so easy at this point to be frustrated. Can't I ever be alone? Can't you people ever leave us alone? Can't you see that we have come into the wilderness to not be with you? Isn't that obvious? All the doors are locked. All the shades are pulled on the house. We clearly don't want to spend time with you right now. And yet the people have come. And what's Christ's response? Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because, and this is a quotation from the Torah, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is compassion. Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that this was probably even a visual thing, that as the boat pulls up to shore, what he sees before him are the hills of the wilderness. And all over these hills are people in their lighter clothing. And it would have looked, maybe even at a distance, really literally looked like a flock of sheep milling around, undecided. They, don't, they know they're there to find Jesus, but no one knows where he is. They don't know what to do. And their leader, remember, is having his drunken birthday party. And they can't look to the Pharisees because they're cruel and legalistic and self-interested. They can't look to the Sadducees or the priests because they're all committed to Rome and paganism and in various ways compromised. So they are really a people completely lost. And he sees this and he has compassion. He's moved with compassion. And notice what the text says he did for them. The first thing he did for them. He's going to feed them in a moment. He will care for their bodies But look how verse 34 ends. As he sees them in this state, he began to teach them many things. He began, in fact, so much so, verse 35, that it grew late. He just kept teaching and, and giving them God's word. He made that the emphasis. We see this all through scripture. God does care about our bodies and our souls. But when there's a choice between the two, if we have to make a choice, as it were, Christ always emphasizes the soul and his word. And so he spends the majority of this time just teaching them, preaching to them, helping them. I told you a second ago that what Jesus or what Mark does here, really, it's Jesus speaking through Mark, is he's quoting uh, the book of Numbers, that they were sheep without a shepherd. That quotation, very famous quotation in Judaism, it's used several times in the Old Testament. But the first time it's used, and no doubt what Jesus has in mind here, It's used when Moses is retiring. And the people are thinking to themselves, how are we going to take the promised land and and function as a people without Moses? And a man named Joshua, of course, is chosen. These words are said, and then Joshua is chosen, and Joshua leads the people in to conquer the promised land. Now, you know, I hope you know, Jesus' name is Joshua. We say Jesus, that's Latin, that's not his name. It's Yeshua of Nazareth. His name is Joshua or Yahweh saves. And so Mark, I'm sure, understands that he is quoting from one of the premier moments in Scripture, one of the premier moments from the life of Joshua, a moment when the people need another Moses, someone to come and lead them because they are lost, they're sheep without a shepherd. And so there's love here. There's compassion here for the crowds. One last thing about this compassion of the shepherd. Uh, Just notice with me that it, it extends to not just his disciples, 
not just to the people in the crowd who were sincere, but to every single person there. 5,000 men, maybe seven, 8,000 total people. Not everyone there is going to become a Christian. Not everyone there is going to follow Christ. And yet his compassion is for all of these people, believer or unbeliever. He knows. He knows election. He gets election. He knows some of them will not be in his kingdom, that some of him will reject him. Maybe some of, him, some of them will even chant for his death. But his compassion is still for those people. And he has mercy on those people. And so he shows his disciples, remember, he will teach them, love even your enemies. Love even your enemies. And so his compassion, the compassion of the shepherd is for his sheep, for his workers, for his disciples, for the crowds, and for all people. So here what we have, I think, is the beginnings, I hope you see, of the fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And the text tells us that out of all that compassion, Christ called on these people to sit down, almost the language similar, lay down where they are in groups, and he will feed them and he will care for them. I wonder if that's how you see the Lord Jesus Christ. If you see how compassionate he really is. I think a lot of us as Christians, we go through a lot of our lives thinking that Jesus primarily wants things from me. He wants things out of me. And when I can live up to those standards and give him the things he wants, then he loves me. And when I'm not giving him the things he wants, he must be deeply disappointed. Or maybe you struggle with assurance of your salvation. I know many do. That somehow you'll live your life trusting in Christ and then you'll get sort of to the end of your life and at the last minute, God will pull a gotcha moment on you. Well, you remember the words we studied not that long ago from Psalm 34, this wonderful promise, none who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is just not the way our Savior is. He is compassionate. He is compassionate. The story of our world, the story of our culture, is not that God has narrowed his compassion or is unwilling to save. The unwillingness and the narrowness is all with us. It always has been. The unwillingness is our sin. Christ is far more willing to save than people are willing to be saved, if I can put it that way, because of his compassionate heart. And so see here, once again, one of many places in Scripture, the shepherd's compassion. See, second of all with me in our text, the shepherd's wisdom. The shepherd's compassion for the crowds, for his disciples. See, second of all, the shepherd's wisdom. You see that, I think, especially in verse 37. He answered his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? Why does Jesus say this? Why does he, it almost seems in, kind of weird, right? They've come to him with a crisis. We need to do something about all these people. And he seems almost a little um, unpredictable as he turns on them and says, you feed them. You feed them. 
What's happening here? Well, I think what we're seeing here and what we see as the passage unfolds is the wisdom of the shepherd. The shepherd is going to feed all his lambs. It's his calling, it's his duty, and it's his right to feed all the sheep, and he's going to. But he is going to, in his wisdom, he's going to do it through the hands of his disciples. He's going to do it through the hands of his people. He engages them. Moses, uh, if he were just trying to sort of reduplicate the manna from heaven, right? He could just pray and the manna would be on the ground or would fall from heaven. The people could just eat. But as John Calvin points out, this is a miracle that will happen at literally in the hands of the disciples. It will take place as they are passing out the bread and the fish, that it will be reproducing in their own hands so that they are fully involved in the miracle. Here's how Calvin put it. He gave them the loaves in order that in their hands the astonishing increase might take place and that they might thus be ministers of Christ's divine power. Christ determined that his power should be handled by them. I never knew this before until I read John Calvin and before him, uh, John Chrysostom, both make this point. But quite literally, the miracle of this meal is in their hands. Christ wants it that way. They kept giving food and it kept appearing in their hands. Yes, Jesus gave the blessing. Jesus is the power behind it. But the wisdom of the shepherd is to feed the world, to feed the world through flawed, broken people like you and me, through flawed, broken people. He could have made the gospel just like this bread just appear in the sky for everyone to believe. He could have done it in all different ways, but in his wisdom, in his wisdom, he has chosen that the miracle of the gospel and the miracle of the bread should happen in the hands, hearts, and mouths of ordinary people who are his servants. Not only that, but in this text, I think he teaches us, not just us, but the whole church, universal, that when we come to Christ to serve on his behalf, as the disciples do here, we should follow in that example of simply bringing what we have. He asks them, what do you have? It's interesting, again, if he just wants to feed them, just make food appear out of nowhere. He doesn't do that, does he? He wants the miracle to happen in their hand, and he wants to take and use what they have. And so he takes this little bit of food that they have, ridiculously small amount of food, and he multiplies it for the good of all. And so again, you're seeing things here. I hope you're sensing this. You're seeing something of the wisdom of the shepherd, how he acts in the world. Most of us are not saved. There may be a few exceptions in the room. Most of us did not come to Christ through some extraordinarily brilliant person. I mean, think about who had the biggest impact on your spiritual life. It probably was really simple things. For myself, I came to Christ really through the ministry of my mother and when I was really little. So we're talking about praying with me before meals and at night, having family devotions, learning catechism, very simple stuff. Who made you? God. 
What else did God make? God made all things. Like, I wasn't sitting down with my dad and having brilliant theological conversations that, you know, as a, as a toddler when I was first really believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, even from my youngest years. And those of you who are saved as adults, you can probably go back too and see many of the people that brought us to Christ, there was not, they weren't miracle workers. They didn't make the stars fall down from heaven. They used what they had. They simply brought to Christ what they had, and Christ multiplied it and used it. And I can tell you for us as pastors and elders, this is especially profound. You know, as we serve this table to you, as, as I'm preaching right now, you know, what I have to offer is pretty simple stuff. I don't have magic. I can't make fireworks appear here in the room. Right? But the trust, the rest is that the shepherd in his wisdom has decided to feed millions of people through these simple elements. And that's exactly what he does. Elizabeth Elliot, some of you know her, um, really caught on to this idea of simply bringing to God whatever you have to offer, no matter how meager it may appear. And she wrote this, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is, a, is material, this grief is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, he uses and makes use of it by his blessing. The tools that God has given us may seem small. The gifts God has given you may seem small. The time that you have to offer may seem small, but what you have to understand is this. The shepherd in his wisdom has decided to use these small and weak things to do great things so that he might get the glory. That's why so many, so many of us were brought to Christ by something simple and small. Because as Paul reminds us, this, this is the design and the wisdom of the master to bring people to Christ, to build the kingdom through what appears to people to be foolish. And so when we have the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, the, the things before you are just so simple. If you've ever really looked at it, it's just some bread broken up and a little thimble full of wine or grape juice, right? Very simple things. And, and there's a sense in which we could all stand here during a communion service and say, what good is this? We have people going through all these hardships. We have people who've had a horrible divorce. We have people with cancer. We've got all these things going on. And you're offering us this? What is this among so many? What is this among so many? But that misunderstands the way and the wisdom of the master, the shepherd, because it is his business to hide himself in weak, small, quiet things, things that do not appear great and make them great. Here in these verses, then, we have the formula that Jesus will later use at the Last Supper. Jesus looked to heaven. He took the loaves. 
He blessed them, he broke them, broke them, and he gave them. If you, you see that arrangement, it's there in verse 41. It's the exact same words used by Jesus at the Last Supper when he takes that bread and that wine and institutes the Lord's Supper. And then it's the same words Paul will use later, and it's the same words we use every time we come to the Supper in one way or another. We look to Christ, we ask his blessing, we break the bread, and we give it to eat in the belief that Christ has the power to multiply it to our strength and to our feeding. Now, here's the point. This is the wisdom of the shepherd. You have to understand this. It is his wisdom. It is his technique. It is his uh, plan, his strategy to use the weak things to build his church. And so if you're sitting there and saying, I can't witness to my family, I can't witness to my friends, I can't teach my children the Bible, I don't know enough, I'm too weak. If you're looking at the things we do as a church and saying, it's just too weak, they do too much preaching, we sing the Psalms too much, too much praying, we need to have some more light shows, we need to have juggling bears, we need to do more, we need more ministries, we need to do all these things, you're misunderstanding the strategy of the master. The master is intentionally building the church in simplicity to mock and humiliate the strong. And so he has given this great gift to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so you, you see your calling, he says, brethren, not many are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so, as we see what Christ is doing with just this little boy's offering, we're reminded of what he continues to do in our lives and throughout the world. And we're encouraged to hope because he is a wise shepherd enacting this wise plan and all for his own glory. One last thing. We've seen his compassion uh, in, in the way he sees the crowds, the way he sees his disciples, especially in contrast to someone like Herod and, and I would say many of our own leaders We've seen his wisdom, again, in contrast to our own leaders today. He does not rejoice in the big show, but rather he hides his wisdom in simple things and places it there for his own glory. One last thing I want you to see, and that is his bounty, the shepherd's bounty. Jesus is presented to us here as one greater than Moses, and that's evidenced in a number of ways, but especially by the way the, the passage ends. In verse 43, we're told, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. Here's the picture Mark is trying to paint for us. It wasn't like they divided this up and it was just enough. Everybody got just enough and then it kind of stopped. The picture Jesus wanted, he could have done that easily, right? He's feeding 5,000 people. He could have just realized, okay, everybody's full, the meter's full, stop there. But he goes over the top until the cup is running over. Why? To show his glory, to show himself for who he is. This is why one of, this is one of those miracles that is both miracle and sign. Miracle in that it shows his power. Sign in that it signs for thousands of people who Jesus is. 
We could put it in the words of John's gospel. The law, the law, which was good, as we've read in Romans, came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. He is greater than Moses, and it's shown by his ability not just to provide, but to overwhelmingly provide for his people. Evidence of this is all through the text. We could explore some of it, but you'll notice, just to give one example, that Jesus has the people sit down in groups. And you might have noticed when we read it that they were in groups of 50s and 100s. Why? Because when Israel entered the land, Moses put them in groups of 50s and 100s. Jesus is intentionally, Mark is intentionally telling you, this is the fulfillment of that moment. This is the true Exodus. This is the true Joshua. This is the true Moses. And so he's fulfilling all those promises. He's fulfilling what Elisha did. They would have known that story of the death in the pot and the starving people, those horrible times. Remember all through Elijah and Elisha's ministry, the constant threat of famine, not enough to eat, not enough to eat. And Elisha signals himself as the true man of God by being able to provide food for his disciples. Jesus is doing all that and more. He's surpassing and filling the Old Testament. And let me just remind you, this is how Jesus deals with the Old Testament. He doesn't discard it, as unfortunately I think many American Christians do. He fills it. And after he's filled it completely up with himself, it then runs over the top because he's not just what the Old Testament had, he's much, much, much more. And so everything that's happening here, even the grouping of people, even the fact that his apostles are 12 men, all of it is significant for the fulfillment of Scripture. But as true as, as, as is true in the Gospels, so true in this passage, that as this text looks back and fills all of the old up, so it also looks forward. It looks to the Last Supper where he blessed it, he broke it, multiplied it, and gave it to his disciples to eat. This miracle stands alongside John's teaching in chapter 6 that Jesus is both the new Moses bringing the manna and is also the manna itself. He is the priest blessing the bread and breaking it. In, in Judaism, the looking up to heaven was the prayer, the priestly prayer you gave before you gave these elements. And so Jesus is acting here as priest, breaking the bread, looking up to heaven. It's a liturgy. He enacts it again at the Lord's Supper, Last Supper. And he's filling all of that up and ultimately pointing his people and his followers to himself. This is how fully Jesus inhabits and fulfills both the Old and the New Testament, fills it. He isn't just the new Moses. He's also the manna. And he's not just the manna, but, oh, by the way, he's also the rock that Moses struck for water. He is all these things and more. He is the fountain of life. And he is also, you remember, the water that comes out of the fountain, he is the shepherd, right? We talk about that all the time. But he's also the lamb that is slaughtered. As Colossians reminds us all through that wonderful letter, Jesus is all things so that he might fill all things and he is head over all things. 
This miracle then is one of the great places where Jesus presents himself to us as the very reason for living, the reason for history. Whether you realize it or not, all of us must answer that question. Why am I here? What does it all mean? And the Bible's answer is not just to have a little more faith or just a little more love or believe a little bit more, but rather presents to us Jesus Christ as the answer, the reason for Scripture and the reason for human history. Well, you know, if you know the rest of the story, you know what happened after this. The people recognized, I think to some degree, that Jesus was a compassionate, a wise, and a generous shepherd that he could and cared and wanted to feed them. And they started following him around. But you also remember how things grew dark because Jesus began to teach them that not only could he give them bread, but that he was bread. And it was at that crucial moment, if you read through the Gospels, it's really at that moment the text says many, many people stopped following him. So long as he provided the food, and gave them blessing, they were fine. They were happy to follow him. But when he identified himself as the bread of life for the world, when he said, no, you don't understand, it's what you're seeing here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be multiplied in such a way that I feed the world. It was then that many left him. And so I think it is today. Many are attracted to this picture of leadership, his love, his humility, his generosity, his glory in doing all this. But then they stumble when in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat that bread, you cannot have life within you. I knew a man once who was uh, fresh out of uh, alcoholics, or I guess narcotics anonymous. He had been completely enslaved in a life of addiction and lost his family, lost his home. He'd really lost everything. And I just ran into him. I knew who he was. We had common connections. And our conversation had started really well. He, he told me very much up front, I reached out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from my addictions. And he did. And I've been clean this amount of time. I'm back in my daughter's life. All this is happening. And I said, that's great. It's wonderful. Christ is uh, compassionate Uh, in so many ways. But then he said, you know what, though, I've kind of come to understand it doesn't matter which higher power you ask. It was really more that I asked a higher power, not that there was this particular one. I could have asked any higher power and it would have really worked. And I realized at that moment that that's, that's kind of the issue that we have and really the people have and maybe even you have with this text. It's easy. You see, Christ had fed this man. He had come to him and said, I'm hungry. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose everything. Help me. And Jesus actually helped him, I believe. Gave him the mercy, the common grace, whatever it was. Sent people into his life. Allowed him to get better. But then he said, you know, but I'm not really going to follow him. You know, I'm not really going to obey him. I'm not going to really give my life to him. I I follow him because he pays well. He feeds well. And that's how many people, I think, come to this text. But that does not capture, you see, the generosity of the master here. The whole picture is not of just another Moses, another prophet that you can choose to follow or not follow. It is one who, in the breaking of bread, breaks himself and offers himself. 
And the only people who really end up going away from the Gospels, not hungry anymore, not thirsty anymore, are the people who actually come to Christ. Some of these people did, but many didn't. And so here you have a beautiful picture of the shepherd, of the sheep, and the bread of life offering himself to the whole world, and yet really only truly received by his people who want not just the bread, but the actual bread of life. As we close, three kind of applications briefly uh, that I just want to sort of press home to you from this text. And again, I feel like there's so much more here to explore with you. But just three things. I've mentioned them already, but I want to wrap us up by looking at reminding you of them. Three things. First of all, the importance of rest. The importance of rest. God is okay when I rest. You need to know that when we rest. And he does not expect us to fix the world and do everything in our home and lives. He has a plan and he has a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the responsibility of running the world and you don't have that responsibility. Um, That's why we have a Sabbath. That's why we have this day where we put aside what we're doing and we rest. And you can see, I think, in this text that Jesus has that kind of compassion for his people and wants them to rest. He wants them to take sabbaticals. He wants them to put down their work at times and rest. He cares about that. And you just cannot get through this text without sensing the master's compassion. Again, if you think what you're doing is so essential that you can never rest, then what you're really saying is that your ministry, your calling is more essential than that of the disciples at this moment in history. And, and that's ridiculous, right? If this is the most important calling ever, the most important ministry ever, and Jesus said, you still need rest, you still need breaks, you still need Sabbaths, then how much more is that true for us? So in this whole setting, remember that about your shepherd. He, he causes us to lay down in green pastures. He cares about rest. A second great practical lesson for us, I think, is dependence. Dependence. Learning to simply come to Christ and receive from him. That sounds very easy, but if you're a mature Christian, I'm very confident you know it's not easy. It is extremely difficult to train yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit to come to Christ and depend upon him. We are just wired to depend on everything else. That's why, I don't know if you're like this, I think most of us are, I know I am, that when we're in a crisis, prayer is often, not always, but often one of the last things we think about. Because we are just wired to not depend on God, but to make things happen for ourselves. And yet this whole passage, notice all through it, everybody's weak. The disciples are standing there saying, we can't, we're exhausted from the ministry you called us to, we can't do it anymore. We can't feed them. There's not enough food. We're helpless. What do we do? And what does Christ do? He provides. The people are also helpless. They're hungry. They don't have anything. They don't have any answers. Their leaders are horrible. And what do they do? They come to Christ and receive from him. Most assuredly, I say to you, says Jesus, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Only the hungry, 
Only those who depend on Christ will know satisfaction. And so there's much here about dependence. And lastly, I think there's a lot here about the means of grace. The means of grace. As the use of this text by both Jesus later at the Last Supper and the Apostles makes clear, the ultimate fulfillment of these verses occurs at the Last Supper when Jesus breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples. We celebrate then this passage, this feeding, every time we have communion, every time we serve communion, this passage is in the background. Of course, we're looking first and foremost at the Last Supper, but they are linked. They're very much linked. And when we do that, the simple bread and wine reminds us that all of Christ comes to us in such normal-looking packages. We often expect that heavenly gifts will be wrapped in heavenly wrapping paper, that our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to us in silver and gold, in massive moments of ha-ha moments, and these sort of spiritual high moments. But Jesus gives himself to his people in the simple means of grace, the word, prayer, and the sacraments. And he's hidden himself there. Imagine the lesson if you were one of these people there, one of these 5,000, 8,000 people. Jesus was being presented to you in a way, an amazing way. And yet it was all happening in the simplest form, wasn't it? In the simple bit of fish and bread you were holding, Christ was making himself known to you if you had eyes to see. What I'm saying is that is not just here. That is all through your Bible. The Lord Jesus continues to hide himself in simple ways. Not hide himself in a deceptive way, but to put himself in in truly humble settings where people least expect him and where he is found by the weary, the hungry, and the poor. His presence is not promised to us in the grand cathedral, but of all places, he's promised us his presence in the simplicity of the preaching of his word, in the simplicity of prayer, and in the simplicity of communion bread. This is the wisdom the majesty of this miracle and of the communion that we keep each month. And it reminds us so much of this wonderful miracle. May God encourage you and may the next time you come to this table, you think on this great miracle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even up until this very moment, you and your mercy and your grace are ministering and feeding your people. You are the one doing it. We thank you that although your servants at times are weary, uh, yet you strengthen them. You call them to come aside and rest with you, and then you return to fill them and those they serve. And we thank you, Father, that you've hidden all these wonderful and glorious things of Jesus in these simple vessels so that you might be glorified in the world. Help us to turn and return again and again to these means of grace that Christ might multiply to us his grace. And we ask it in his name. Amen.